Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner right here on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. As you all know, we have covered with some intensity on many different angles the Department of Justice consent decree that will affect the Baltimore City Police Department. Uh, decisions on how that's going to be implemented will be coming up. Uh, we've seen a lot of discussion in the press from the police, from our elected officials, from um, numerous other sources, the FOP, and more. Uh, and there have been, there's been actually an interesting new wave in all this. We've tried to talk about some of this on the air here on the Steiner Show, uh, which is kind of pushing from, what should I say, the outside in uh, to kind of come up with thoughts and ideas about a different kind of public safety model for Baltimore City and clearly how the dissent decree is implemented is part of that. Two of those groups uh, that have um, been addressing that are the No Boundaries Coalition and the Baltimore Action Legal Team. Um, and, of course, you know, before the DOJ report came out, uh, the No Boundaries Coalition came out with their own report, uh, which was really in some ways um, a, an interesting precursor to the report itself because after they interviewed 500 people around the west side of town uh, t- taking their stories, what became clear was a pattern of both physical and verbal abuse uh, that takes place daily in our communities. Uh, and that uh, really kind of was an underpinning to what the DOJ found in their very thorough report about policing in Baltimore City, which in many ways was not so different than other reports they've seen around the country with other police departments. So we're going to talk about the the, the calls that are being made out from these two organizations. BALT, the Baltimore Legal Action Legal Team, uh, which is made up of many activist attorneys in our community, uh, came out with their response uh, to um, to this Things like an immediate end to stop and frisk and more. We'll talk about that. Uh, and No Boundaries Coalition has come out with their own ideas about what they want to see happen uh, with this. So we want to have you join us here with your thoughts at 410-319-8888. You can send us an email to talk at steinershow.org. Uh, you can tweet us at Mark Steiner. Log on to our Facebook pages. But as you hear the conversation unfold, 410-319-8888 is your platform to have your ideas heard in this conversation. We're joined by Ray Kelly, community organizer and one of the leaders of No Boundaries Coalition. Good to see you back in the studio, Ray. Thanks for having me. Rebecca Nagel is also here from No Boundaries Coalition. Good to have you here as well, Rebecca. Thanks for having us. And Jenny Egan uh, is on the phone with us. She is co-founder of the Baltimore Action Legal Team. And Jenny Egan, welcome. Good to have you with us. Glad to join you. And you all can join us here at 410-319-8888, and do call in. So, and the Sun covered some of this in a couple of articles recently that I, that I read. But let, that these are these are both very different reports in some ways. Uh, but I think they dovetail interestingly. But let me take a step backwards for a moment. And, and Jen, let me just start with you because first describe BALT. I mean, I think a lot of people don't even know what that is or who you are. So the Baltimore Action Legal Team uh, is a group of uh, lawyers and volunteers and legal workers who uh, exist to support the Black Lives Matter movement in Baltimore. We do that uh, in a number of ways, one of which is to provide legal observers for protests, to provide jail support for those who are arrested, and also to provide legal and human rights uh, framework and support uh, in Baltimore around issues of police violence. And, and uh, talk a bit about the report that you just submitted. So it, the DOJ released their findings, and we made and they made a call, and they asked the community for input about what they think should be included in the consent decree. The consent decree is the agreement between the Department of Justice and the Baltimore and Baltimore uh, about how the police department is going to be reformed going forward. So we put out a. Uh, a series of recommendations about what we think must be included in that consent decree and what must be changed immediately. We focused on uh, five issues, uh, the unconstitutional stop and frisks, uh, searches and arrests that happen in Baltimore, the role of BPD in a greater system of structural racism, the continued infringement, police infringement on the rights of free speech and protest, uh, gender biasing in policing, and uh, what kind of monitor we want to see overseeing and implementing this consent decree, because we think it should be community-led, and we think it should include impacted members of the communities who have suffered at the hands of BPD, uh, as, as the DOJ findings letter outlined, and as the People's Decree and the No Boundaries Co- uh, Coalition 
uh, demonstrated in their report. And, and talk about the, the kind of the work that you brought into all this, uh, Ray Kelly and Rebecca Nagel, about the your people's decree um, uh, on the on um, from from Central West Baltimore. So the the people's decree was kind of based on a almost three year listening campaign of what the residents in Central West Baltimore felt needed to change in their community and how the community needs to be involved in these changes with the police department. We, we've we kind of pushed for these changes for years because of the fact that we have to live through this. So there was mention in the DOJ report that 92% of frivolous stops and arrests are in the African-American community. But if you dig a little deeper in that report, they'll also tell you that 44% happened in two neighborhoods in Baltimore City, which is Sandtown and Upton, which for us is one neighborhood. So really almost half of those illegal stop and frisk have been happening in the residents of Central West Baltimore's lives every day. So we, we see this as prevalent. So that's why we kind of raise that resident voice so we can make sure we get immediate change. Right now, while we're waiting to find out what's happening with the consent decree and police reform, we're still having our civil rights violated in the city, and we're still having a spike in violence due to lack of effective policing. So we want to make sure that we're raising this to a point where we can call our legislators to address it immediately and then also present these formal recommendations Mm -hmm. that have to happen if there's ever going to be trust, if there's ever going to be accountability in the police department. It has to be civilian inclusion, civilian oversight, and complete transparency. And we have to be there from the beginning to the end. Rebecca, do you want to add to that at all? This isn't the first time that Baltimore's been in this situation. You know, we saw the lawsuit around zero tolerance policing, um, the coverage of even BPD's handling of sexual assault cases in 2010. So as a city, we've supposedly gone through some changes. And then when you read the DOJ report, all of those practices that were called out in those two instances are still are still happening. And so if we don't implement um, serious structural change um, where there's civilian oversight and there's accountability as a city, we're going to find ourselves in the same crisis five to 10 years from now. And the civil rights violations that we found in our report and that were outlined in the DOJ report will continue to happen. So I'm, I'm curious, I mean, Jenny, let's go around the room here. Are, are you all at the table, the official table? No. At the official negotiation. And what, and no. what does that mean even? We don't even really know. <laughs> <laughs> we, we're definitely not at the negotiating table, but this is our chance to bring our input in with the DOJ when they actually negotiate. So the push was to make sure that everyone got an opportunity to connect with the DOJ and before they actually go into these negotiations with the city, they know what the residents of the city from every diverse neighborhood around here has been able to submit their recommendations on what we feel like the police should reform in their structure, and that's what we want the DOJ. So this is our opportunity before these negotiations start to actually input. Jenny, go ahead. And, Mark, that's an important point. Who is at the table? Yeah, who is at the table? The DOJ is at the table, and the city is at the table. So as much as our... Uh, recommendations are aimed at the DOJ and telling them what we what we want them to argue for. We're also residents of Baltimore, and the other people at the table are our city leaders and our and our police department and the city leadership. So, residents of Baltimore should also be pu- pushing their elected officials uh, to let them know what they want to see in this consent decree because. The DOJ shouldn't have to be pushing it. This should be coming from the city side. The city should be asking for these things and including it and volunteering uh, to do things like end stop and frisks, uh, like issue um, a new use of force policy. So as as much as we want to 
the DOJ to argue for these things. We also want the people of Baltimore to begin to push their city council members, the mayor and the uh, police commissioner to agree to these things and to have it come from both sides. Uh, if our city were, wasn't resident, uh, reticent uh, and was ready to adopt um, progressive reforms, then it would be a much easier negotiation. So but let me stay on this for a moment. Folks, join us here at 410-319-8888. I mean, I want to see what you want to see when it comes to this Department of Justice consent decree, uh, how much you feel part of the process, what does it mean to be part of the process. So, I mean, so what, are we saying that – I'm very curious from your perspective what – the process is right now taking place so, uh, the, with, this, with, with the city and the DOJ and the police. I mean, who's actually in the midst of this negotiation from when Jen was saying, Jennifer was saying, Jenny was saying that it was uh, um, our city officials and the city police department, but who's actively on this board? So um, we have been in pretty consistent dialogue with the Department of Justice, and they've been really receptive to listening to our feedback. Um, on the city side, uh, we've requested a meeting with Commissioner Davis to go over our demands. Um, his office responded. Um, we've yet to schedule that meeting, and we're also part of a citywide coalition called the Campaign um, for job safety and justice, and CJSJ um, requested a meeting with the mayor's office, and the mayor has yet to agree um, to meet with CJSJ. So those are our efforts. Um, but who's going to be at the table? Exactly who's in the room? We don't know exactly. It's actually um, likely to be lawyers, so it might not be the mayor and the commissioner, but it is likely to be their legal team, but we know that those are um, two of the city leaders that are some of the key decision makers. So do we know, is, is, is in terms of what you all have put out, both organizations here and this kind of coalition group from the city, um, is it different, is what you're proposing different than what you think the city's proposing when it comes to addressing the consent decree from the Department of Justice? So I, I think we... Uh the city is kind of pointing to what they're doing, the initiatives that are starting, or I think our push is more for the committed commitment to reform. We don't we don't really wanna build on a broken foundation. We 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 feel like we need drastic changes within this department where we, we don't really wanna say that this has been happening since the unrest when really crime has been spiking since the unrest. So that's not really working. We, we're pushing for drastic. Yeah, I want to come back to the point. You, you, it's the second time you've alluded to this thing about ineffective policing and the spike in crime. I want to come back to this, this idea and talk about this right before the end of this hour because that's, that's an, a really interesting component to this and, and a, a twist on how we address that. But so, so Jenny, I mean, what, what, do we know from, what do you know from your organization about what, what exactly – is going on in terms of what is being demanded of or what kind of changes are being sought with the police department from official uh, for the official end um you know i once again i think the doj has been very transparent they've held community meetings they've gone to community groups uh as far as i know the police department and the mayor's office have uh, has not done that same outreach and has not uh sought out input in that same way I'm concerned about an ongoing dialogue that comes from the city uh, government that continues to push this bad apple uh, narrative that says that, they, you know, that there's only a few bad apples. We can see from the DOJ report uh, that, that Ray and some of the numbers that Ray referenced that almost half of these stops are happening uh, where only 12 percent of the city lives. Uh, the numbers of illegal stop and frisks, of illegal arrests, of abuse, uh, and, and violence and even the killing of residents of Baltimore are uh, outrageous, and they point to a broken culture, not just a few bad apples. The city um, could do and implement changes prior to the consent decree, but we haven't been hearing those kind of uh, commitments. We haven't heard them say that we're going to stop um, jump outs and stop and frisk. We haven't seen them uh, bar um, certain practices. They ha we haven't seen a progressive or updated use of force. They did change the use of force policy, but it simply does not go uh, far enough. Um, so I think that they may be agreeing to a number of things uh, and thinking about a number of reforms, but they have not been transparent enough, and I think that's an ongoing 
issue with our city government and with the police especially. They have not been transparent about what those things are, and I think uh, that is a part of an issue, the issue itself, um, but also something we need to push for, that we need our city to be pushing for the most progressive reforms possible. So folks, do join us at 410-319-8888. I know this affects a lot of us uh, in this uh, listening area, people who listen to this program. Uh, there are a lot of you out there who've called in who are police officers and who are former police officers. We'd like to hear from you at 410-319-8888 and members of the community and how you think this should be addressed. Uh, what do you think is going to happen? For, uh, you can also send us an email to talk at steinershow.org, tweet us at Mark Steiner, but 410-319-8888. So... Let's take two ideas here and what that would mean and what you both, all three of you think in your organization think it would look like when you say end stop and frisk. So, you know, New York had this big piece on stop and frisk policy. And we never thought about it in terms of, well, many people in Baltimore didn't think about it as something that affected the city of Baltimore. But clearly from this DOJ report, we can see that. And you can also see it from the report that you all put out um, with the numbers of people that you interviewed and told their own stories about what happens on a daily basis. So what would it mean? What is it, how, how would that change? Uh, I, I mean, your, your report, um, Jenny, in Balch report was really kind of extensive and thorough in its kind of outlining of what you wanted to see stop and what would replace it. So um, we know that other jurisdictions have gotten rid of stop and frisk, including uh, re- most recently New York City, which got rid of stop and frisk. There was no spike as a result. Uh, And part of the reason is because stop and frisk uh, and, you know, in Baltimore it's often referenced as jump outs, are ineffective policing. So although they happen, uh, you know, 44% of these stops are happening uh, and they are majority happening to black people, they are less likely to uncover uh, contraband. So although black people were more likely to be stopped, uh, white white residents who were searched were 50% more often found with contraband. This is a huge waste of resources, of time, and it's ineffective. Uh, it, it, it is racially discriminatory. It causes uh, real trauma, and yet it also does not uncover what people are looking for. So it violates citizens' rights, and it's not helpful uh, or productive. So there are lots of things to, uh, that would replace it, one of which would be more effective means of policing, uh, more intelligent investigation. Well, we have these astronomical numbers of stop and frisk. We also have a very low clearance rate uh, for serious crimes. So there is lots of smart policing techniques uh, and lots of good uh, policing, community policing that could replace those things. But frankly, illegal searches don't need to be replaced with anything. They just need to be stopped. Ray? And I agree. And I think in our community... the first thing that would have to happen is you would have to redefine probable cause because of the open-air drug trade and the traffic that goes through Pennsylvania Avenue, so to speak. You would have to remove, and you would be fooling yourself if you think that location wasn't part of it, where part of that profile in our communities is location where just being in a certain area can prompt that type of initiative, that type of interaction with the police. And really, it once again, we get back to everything would have to change. It's just a culture in policing that this is how they address the crime, as they call it in our area, is stopping everyone, checking everyone. So really, just being in this community they would have to actually start with training officers on what it's like to actually live in this community. And the whole regime of probable cause to stop someone in our community would have to be reevaluated and changed drastically once again. Can I just pick up on what Ray said? Part, part of that is that police officers are allowed under a case called Illinois versus Wardlaw mm-hmm. uh, to take into account where uh, a person is located, where what neighborhood they're in, if it's a, and I put this in, in, in quotes, a high crime area. Uh, what we know about West Baltimore and Santone, Winchester, is that it is certainly a high, high policed area. 
Um, but I will say that that's part of our recommendation that we don't think where a person lives should be able should be a part of the calculation about whether or not they are likely to be involved in criminal activity. And just this week, the highest court in Massachusetts uh, found that for a black person, in, in this case a black man who ran from police, uh, that he had a, a reason to run from police, given the disproportionate policing, given racial profiling, and given uh, the likelihood of, of experiencing violence at the hands of police, that that uh, calculus shouldn't apply to this man. And I think that's an important case. We should be looking to that case for guidance because using neighborhood and using where someone lives, given the history of segregation, given, uh, given the history of state-sponsored violence rooted in the law, uh, we can't use that uh, as a reason for finding someone to be more or less suspicious. Rebecca. And I think that um, the other piece of it is for the police department to argue that they're doing these stops because they're just really doing their best job rings false when you um, also bring in stories from residents of ineffective policing and just the vast lack of response in these same neighborhoods. So one of the stories in our report is a Santon resident who called 911 35 times in a two-week period, wrote down, logged every call, and the police never came. So if the police are doing their best to make these communities safe when residents do reach out for police support and they don't respond, that argument rings very false. So, you know, I was, I was thinking about um, the conversation we've had like this for a long time. And there's this, there's this arc for me from the beginning of our program back in <clears throat> 1993 to now. When in the early years of this program is when people in communities were calling for what was tantamount to a broken windows policy um, that was implemented in New York and here and um, uh, and got more intense at the turn of the century with Martin O'Malley and, and his philosophy of policing. And in part was because people were, were worried about safety in their own neighborhoods. And you alluded to, Ray, earlier when you said, you know, that, that uh, um, there's been this spike of violence that has to do with kind of a, a, a lack of effective policing, but you also want the way the police operate to change. I mean, can we explore that a minute? What does that mean? So it's, it's only a myth what, that what? the community doesn't support the police. The, the community want to have an effective and involved police force. But just to visit the whole issue of community policing you have to make sure that community policing is a tactic that we want to use in our community to actually build a safer community where we don't need policing at all. So if you look at the more affluent neighborhoods, they don't really have issues with the police because they don't have a need for the police to have a constant presence in their communities like we do. So we we want to make sure that when we were growing up, there was always a beat officer, so to speak. You knew who he was. You knew his name. He's walking up and down the street. He was knowing who was doing wrong, and he's kind of, you better get off the corner. I see you, blah, blah, blah. And he was respected. He kind of was part of that community. The paradigm now is when the police are called or when they come, it's a... Uh, apprehension effort. They're coming to lock someone out, and that is not really helping this community. That is actually what has caused the community to be in the situation that it is. It's this 50, 60 years of oppressive policing in the urban neighborhoods that have created a lot of these situations directly. Zero tolerance has created this criminal background for a lot of people that now have no other recourse but to do what they can to feed their families and sometimes that's on the streets. So I mean the, I mean there's also a little bit not to get stuck on this point, but I just just pursue for a moment. There's also some of this is um there's also some kind of a mythology I think is what we have in our heads as well about when policing was good. I mean there might the, not in my life, <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, when 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 police there were beat cops, but 
the brutality that existed in the 50s and 60s was pretty intense. In then when the black community was a minority in the city, it was really intense. I remember the 64 and the Vini brothers when the police went around and beat hundreds of people up and arrested people looking for these two men who were accused of shooting a police officer. Right? I mean, so, but I mean, so I mean, this is not something like it's new. It's not something that just occurred right. yesterday. And, I, and I've had uh, the life convenience of growing up in the 70s, so I was kind of at the end of the civil rights where there was this calm, and then in the mid-80s it kind of went into war on drugs. So I, I saw where it wasn't all about the violence between the two and the us. There was actually an attempt. I actually experienced Officer Friendly growing up. So I did get to see it before it disappeared in the late 80s. And it's possible. So we're going to take a very quick break. And Jenny, when I come back, I want to kind of focus in on your, the, some of the stuff you have in here about um, uh, juveniles and, and uh, stop and frisk and more. And, and really kind of explore with all of you and our listeners at 410-319-8888. Um, what kind of policing we want? What do we think comes out of the recommendations you're making? What would that look like? So bring us your ideas. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner. Good to have you with us all here on The Mark Steiner Show. Uh, and I'll remind you on our way back to this conversation, The Mark Steiner Show is brought to you in part by MeQ, Baltimore's credit union, offering a full range of financial services. MeQ, Baltimore's credit union, is helping its members and its community prosper. When you invest in yourself, MeQ invests in you. Remember, it's a credit union, not just a bank. It belongs to you. Money comes back in the end. More information at www.mecu.com or at steinershow.org is MeQ, Baltimore Credit Union's banner. We are here with Jenny Egan, co-founder of the Baltimore Action Legal Team, which has come out with a huge, thorough report on what they would like to see uh, happen in terms of the DOJ consent decree. We're here with Rebecca Nagel and Ray Kelly from uh, No Boundaries Coalition. Also have their own pieces out. Uh, and uh, we want to, before we jump back in, I'm going to go right to Jenny Egan, then go around the room here and get the phones here at 410-319-8888. You want to talk about two things that are coming up. So uh, if people want to um, read our recommendations in full, they're at noboundariescoalition.com backslash people's decree. And there's actually an online forum where we're inviting both individuals and organizations to sign on to the demands to show the wide base of public support that these common sense reforms have in our city. And we're holding an event, a press conference tomorrow morning um, at St. Peter Claver Church at 1527. North Fremont at 9 a.m. on Thursday, um, and we are inviting people from the public to come and join and in person show their support for these demands. Um, there's a second event um, tonight that's um, at 6 p.m., and it's uh, an event for survivors of sexual assault and domestic violence and also other concerned citizens to give feedback directly to the DOJ. Um, as most people have seen, a huge part of the findings was DOJ's um, deplorable handling of sexual assault cases. Only one in five rape kits were even tested that were collected, um, and a lot of cases were left open. Um, and so we're in partnership with Power Inside, Baltimore Trans Alliance, Force Upsetting Rape Culture, Baltimore Hollaback, and other organizations um, that represent survivors. There's a meeting tonight, again, at 6 p.m. at Motorhouse 120 West North Avenue um, for people to come and talk to the DOJ about around that particular issue, what needs to change. DOJ will be there tonight. Yeah, two representatives from their team. So, so, so that's important. We'll have that on our website as well, folks. And if you can get out there, you should get out there to have your voices heard. Four one zero three one nine eighty eight eighty. You can have your voices heard right now and here. And, and Jenny Egan, I mean, you're, 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 let's talk about some of the things you're really specifically saying that needs to happen here. Um, and they're really kind of really interesting. Is the things that people don't even realize? I think that they know that are part of their rights when it comes to being confronted uh, by police, whether it's the, the ability, you're, you're calling for the police department to inform a person of their ability to leave prior to beginning questioning, uh, by only issuing citations for quality of life offenses, describe what that means, um, and issuing information cards, and you have, a, you, you have a whole series of things that you are talking about that can just actually begin to happen, you, you're just saying, should be implemented now. 
Absolutely. Mark, first let me ad- address the point before the break where you talked about, you know, we have talked about police reform. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yes, yes, yeah. One, one of those reasons, and, and I think uh, I, I would just join Ray in saying that one of the things that we think about when when DOJ and when BPD talk about changing community policing is that we want to make sure that that doesn't lead to uh, the growth of policing, that that doesn't lead to more policing. We uh, at Baltimore Action Legal Team think that rather than increasing the role of police in poor and black communities uh, to include and to handle things like mental health or juvenile support, uh, the DOJ and, and Baltimore should be actually reinvesting capital from the BPD budget into education and public health. We need to address these issues on the front end. We need to fund uh, and take care of and address the things that lead to crime, lack of opportunity for jobs, quality affordable housing, and resource, uh, resources to address access to physical and mental health. So we call for a reappropriation of those funds so that we are handling those things on the front end rather than, um, you know, community policing can mean a number of things. What we don't want it to mean is expanding uh, policing and the reach and and presence of police. We want to uh, fund those things to decrease uh, what the underlying causes of crime so that we need less police, not more. We call for a a number of things uh, that, you know, police are allowed to stop and talk to citizens. What they don't tell uh, people is that they're free to leave. And given um, the racially discriminatory policing, the pattern and practice of abuse of force and all of those things, in, re- in reality, no one feels free to leave once the police are speaking to them. So we call for the police to inform the citizens of their rights. We call for them to be told you are free to go so that they don't feel coerced into staying when they don't want to. Uh, We also call for an end to Terry Frisks uh, until police are properly trained to stop uh, jump outs, that when police stop citizens and don't end up arresting them, that they give them a receipt, an information card to show that they've been stopped so that those people uh, have some evidence of those stops and that the police should be tracking who they stop and when, because although the DOJ's numbers are shocking, they're also wildly underreported. Even though the, as offensive as these, these numbers are, we know that they're not accurate and that they're only a tip of the iceberg. We also call for a change in the use of force, uh, that um, deadly force should only be used when it's, there is an objectively reasonable eminent threat to life. Uh, that police should be required to use de-escalation as uh, police do in many other countries and is required by international law, that the use of force must be proportionate so that people are not getting slammed, uh, body slammed and uh, roughed up for these minor quality of life offenses or things that do not pose any threat to anyone else. We also call for some increased accountability for police. We believe that there has to be separate investigators. There has to be separate prosecutors uh, because that's the only way we're going to get to that. To get to any of those changes, we have to end LIBOR and we have to fix the memorandum of understanding between the FOP and BPD because although LIBOR, um, many provisions of LIBOR, the Law Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights, were changed in the last legislative session, the MOU between the city and the FOP still contains the old provisions of LIBOR. So there are a lot of immediate things that we want to change and that we think BPD could do immediately to improve the situation. So, uh, well, I'm going to come back to this other question about where we think this this might go, given who might be at the table negotiating this with DOJ. Does this mean that DOJ is going to take control of the police department? Doesn't mean that in Baltimore, does it? So, what will happen? Um, I mean, the consent decree is technically the settlement of a lawsuit. So, if the city and DOJ don't reach an agreement, then the federal government will sue Baltimore City. And so, under the settlement of this lawsuit, there'll be a court-appointed monitor, and then also federal judge. So the court-appointed monitor's job will be to make sure that the city is in compliance with everything that's within the consent decree. And then if they're not, then those issues go to that federal judge. So that's the oversight process for the consent decree that'll be happening, um, we anticipate, starting this fall. One of the things we talked about on the air yesterday here uh, for a bit um, was that 
what would happen if you took <laughs> if you took a hundred million dollars out of the police budget and used that hundred million dollars for the things that many people are talking about in this city? I mean, a how would that affect policing in the city of Baltimore and the safety of the citizens of Baltimore? But b would that begin to allow for the interventions we're talking about that are not necessarily always done by the police. Um, you know, one of the things people talked about was having uh, women, like the women from Power Inside or Out for Justice, becoming uh, intervention mental health workers in the community uh, or expanding safe streets or expanding the ability for citizens to um, uh, deal with housing issues or uh, opening rec centers that actually had mental health facilities and other facilities that become community centers. I mean, what do we think? I mean, sometimes I think where people are kind of afraid to approach a subject like that. You alluded to it, Jenny, a little bit ago, uh, just about where we spend our money. Um, and the police, of course, will argue, and I think a few people would argue that if you take away our money, that means people are going to be less safe in the city of Baltimore. Uh, because we're not there to be able to patrol and get things done and solve the crimes that have to be solved. So, I mean, if, if that kind of dialogue was entered into, um, what do you think the substance would be? So I think really if if you diminish the actual tactical budget that the police department, the money that they spend on implementing programs that actually violate civil rights of black people, that money could much better be spent on community organizations that are actually working to address the root issues of the problems as in opposed to the police department working to kind of address the results of these issues. So I, I don't really think it would be a lack of policing in the city we are we're already actually suffering a lack of actual effective policing so i think if they invest their money better it wouldn't be a big loss so i'm not opposed to that i think the police's department's budget is something that needs to be addressed and how they actually disseminate that fund those funds and when you look at the doj report um the police department in many ways is wasting taxpayers' money. One example is that the state's attorney has a do-not-call list. So there is a list of people who are on the payroll of Baltimore City Police Department who the state's attorney will not call to the witness stand because they are unreliable and because they have lied. And these people are still employed. So basically... Any arrest that these officers make um, won't go through, won't hold up in a court of law, and are harassment. Um, so, I, I mean, that is not a good use of public funds, and that's just one example of the um, ineffective policing in Baltimore City. So, again, to say that um, the police department needs these funds to effectively fight crime, I mean, you just have to look at all the ways that the department is highly ineffective. Jenny, go ahead. Yeah, we spend a billion dollars a year um, imprisoning people in Maryland, and $300 million of that is spent imprisoning people from Baltimore. Every dollar that we spend on the front end is going to save us five on the back. So every dollar that we can invest in the things that lead uh, to criminality or lead to these issues, are we're going to save on the back end. So it's a matter of priorities, and just trying to address those things on the front end uh, will lead to less need for policing. It will lead to less crime. Uh, and that's just a matter of putting our money where our priorities should be, and that should be in investing, especially in our young people. Uh, our young people encounter police from the moment they walk into the into Baltimore City Public Schools. Uh, they see them at the door. What they don't see is opportunity. What they don't see is resources. What they don't see is quality uh, instruction. What they don't see is quality building. So what we need to do is put that money into the front end, invest in our kids, in education, uh, and in job training. Those things will save uh, BPD uh, effort and, and, and the need for police in the long run. 
So, folks, what do you think? 410-319-8888. We need less money for the police, more for community investment. How would that work? How do you think that would work? 410-319-8888. You can um, also write to us here at talkatsanashow.org by email. Uh, and you can um, also tweet us, at Mark Steiner. Melissa tweeted in uh, that we need to – Melissa tweeted in talking about shifting funds from the Baltimore police budget to education and health – Yes, budgets are priorities. We need to focus on how LIBOR, the uh, Law Officer's Bill of Rights, uh, affects relationships with juveniles, too. School police called out in DOJ report after two years, still no policies. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is, I mean, th- the question around the, the, what happens to our children in schools with policing, I think, is also part of this piece that we, we always overlook. I mean, we are also, Baltimore City is the only jurisdiction in the state if I have it correctly, that has its own police force in the, in the schools. And that's um, one thing that is really problematic is that currently um, the way that the MOU is structured with Baltimore City School Police is that um, all of these changes around accountability and training could be put into Baltimore police and not extend to Baltimore School Police. So the problematic nature of that MOU is called out in the report, and um, that really needs to be part of the consent decree. So the city police are not part of this at all, are not part of this consent decree? School police are not School a police. part of this consent decree, no. Interesting. So, and, and I Go ahead, Jenny. But the consent decree could say that um, – And it's happened in other jurisdictions where the DOJ has done this, where part of the consent decree, and this is something that we are pushing for, is that um, the practices that the department has to um, adopt through the consent decree would be applied to their relationships with outside entities. And so that's one way that we can think about, you know, the problematic MOU with school police, but also, you know, collective bargaining and how a lot of the um, accountability structures that uh, the public want to see in place get lost through the collective bargaining agreement. And so the DOJ has done that in other jurisdictions. And I think that that, um, is an important piece that um, people in Baltimore need to be um, pushing for. Let me go back to the phones. I mean, to the phones, 410-319-8888. Your thoughts and ideas, 410-319-8888. And Errol, you're on the air. Welcome. Yes. uh, Good morning. Good morning, Errol. Um, so I had a, a question I, I want to ask because I'm not quite clear on how this procedure works. Um, so with a lot of uh, police uh, shooting that goes on and the uh, officers going on uh, paid administrative leave, um, they're using our tax dollars to um, pay them in order, you know, with, with a lot of the shooting that's going on. So I'm, I'm wondering why are we paying them for injustice? Is what uh, is more of a question of, of, of sort. Hmm. Jenny, you want to grapple with that one? Um, yeah, that's part of uh, part of the issue. Is that under LIBOR and the current MOU agreement with the FOP, uh, it says that um, the internal investigation isn't supposed to start until after the conclusion of all the criminal investigations. So we saw that in the officers charged in Freddie Gray. Uh, that they weren't investigated by the police department until after uh, the conclusion. They didn't start the investigation until after the conclusion of the criminal investigation. That's one of the things that we call on, that we think that that, uh, the BPD should be investigating and taking action on those cases immediately. And there were other kind of proposals that have been kind of uh, that, that many people have posted in, in these discussions. The thing, also, the idea that BB, the Baltimore Police Department, should be kind of completely reconstituted, uh, which is a fairly radical notion. But they did in Camden, New Jersey. Um, and that wasn't through. Um, we actually, I did ask the DOJ about that. That the way that Camden was completely restructured is that the way that their police department was funded actually shifted. So the funding went from the city to the county. So that's how they were legally able to restructure the entire department. So that wouldn't unfortunately apply in Baltimore. (laughs) We looked into it. (laughs) 
Now, Baltimore has this unique situation, right, that BPD is not actually completely controlled by the city. So there is a way, and people, uh, including, I believe, David Troy, have have floated ways uh, that we could disband the police department and reopen it as a city agency, uh, and that that would allow for... uh, for BPD to start from scratch, to rehire those officers who uh, are quality officers, and to bring in new recruitment strategies and to recruit uh, officers who actually live uh, and are invested in Baltimore. And I think an important follow-up point to that is that the consent decree isn't a silver silver bullet, um, and that we'll need to follow up with, you know, like what Jenny was talking about um, with both that proposal that people have been talking about and the changes to the law enforcement officers' bill of rights in Annapolis. So there are some legislative fixes that also need to be put in place. And the consent decree is just um, part of it's just one tool in changing what needs to be changed. So what's our timeline here? Your report's recommendations are out. What's our timeline for all this to happen? So we know that the DOJ's proposed completion of the whole consent decree is November the 1st. Their completion of their recommendation. What, what the DOJ is going to have is not recommendations. Uh, well, the consent the decree itself right. will be completed, completed by, by November, 1st. November the 1st. So they're still, I believe, in the process of collecting community input on the recommendations. But w- I think the goal is to definitely complete the whole process in Baltimore City. And they do have an uh, agreement in principle to actually move forward, which is good, but I think they want to finish before the election and an administrative change. So, so that, for that to happen, Jenny Egan, that means that the city and the, and the police, Baltimore City Police Department and Baltimore City government ha- with the DOJ have to come to a written agreement about the changes that are going to be made. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, and we have, you know, there have been a lot of consent decrees over the last uh, three or four years. Right. So, you can see what some of those look like. The DOJ has them all on their website. You can see consent decrees from Seattle, from Ferguson, and from a number of other places. <coughs> and that, that's what they intend to get done in the next 40 days. It's a big lift. It's a huge lift. <clears throat> and we've seen the consent decrees in many places have happened. And most of them have not had long-lasting effects. I mean, not effects that have actually been wholly transformative of the police or the relationship between the police and the community. That's one thing that I've been reading about around the country. Absolutely. There have been a lot of issues with compliance, uh, with who the monitor mm-hmm. is, uh, and that's one reason that we think that the monitor uh, shouldn't be some outside law firm. It shouldn't be uh, some, uh, you know, a number of disconnected lawyers. It has to have com- community input, and it must include impacted community members, members uh, uh, and people who understand the effects of discriminatory policing on the ground. Uh, it, it, it has to or it won't be effective. And I think uh, that uh, Rebecca is correct that there is no silver bullet. So although the consent decree will be in place in November, uh, we need to be pushing at the state legislative level for changes to LIBOR uh, and for there to be some really intense scrutiny about how we deal with use of force, not just with BPD, uh, but with all law enforcement in Maryland. And uh, Prissy Femme tweets in, uh, the money from the Baltimore Police Department should be used to reopen and operate community centers and programs for youth. I mean, I, you know, we, we hear that a lot. I guess a part of it is, uh, we were saying earlier to break, it'd be interesting to see what our new young city council members actually think. Uh, that are coming into the fold here and where they really stand on these issues. I don't think we really know at this moment. And I think it's important that we show a community as we start to go through these changes that we are actually investing in the future of our community where the kids, I think that's an excellent idea, rec centers and kind of start with bringing our kids up in a better environment. And we should all be in investing in what's next. Right now, we we talk about tactical issues and how much is it going to cost to implement this program. And like Jenny said, we should be looking at the long-term impact of what we're actually financing right now, which is these youth. And 
if we could start by kind of investing in interactive programs that kind of bring community and children and police together, that would be a good investment. Right. The investments we're making now are on things like Port Covington. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> That's where our investments are going. But, I mean, we've been, which we've covered a great deal. So I'm curious for your two organizations, uh, Jenny, very quickly, and then come over to, to Ray and Rebecca, what your next steps are over this next month. Uh, in the next month, we, uh, Baltimore Action Legal Team is actually holding an event Saturday, October 1st. It's called Lightning Bolt. We're bringing community people together to dream, think, agitate, and act uh, to develop a collective action plan for how to improve access to quality jobs and to uproot and change sentencing disparities in Baltimore. So I'd invite people to come to our website. It's baltimoreactionlegal.org uh, and to register for the event. The next thing that we're doing, and I think the important thing that you just noted, Mark, is that there are all these new city council people. Now, just note, they haven't been elected yet. I know that the Democratic primary is the end-all, be-all of elections, <laughs> but there's still uh, Election Day in November. And I think residents should be reaching out to those people. They should be asking them to commit uh, to these measures to, you know, go to the People's Decree, go to Baltimore Action Legal, print out these recommendations, and ask your candidates to commit to these changes. Ask them uh, that to say on the record that they will uh, support these reforms and that they will change uh, Baltimore Police Department. It's necessary to hold people accountable. So that's what the work we're going to be doing between now and November. And what about no boundaries? Our, our path forward is um, very similar. I just want to echo what Jenny said is that we really need to call on both um, city leaders who are in office right now and those who we know will be coming office or we can presume will be coming into office. Um, this is not a moment for politics as usual, um, for people to be thinking about their careers, for them, for people to be cautious about speaking out. We know that we need um, serious reform and we need lawmakers and policymakers and public leaders who can recognize the generational moment that we're in and rise to true leadership um, and kind of fill the vacuum of leadership that we've had in Baltimore City um, through the past two years. Um, so we're having an event again tomorrow, um, 9 a.m., St. Peter Claver Church, 1526 North Fremont. People can come and support in person and also sign on online at noboundariescoalition.com backslash people's decree. Well, I thank you all three. It's been a really great discussion. Uh, you said Rebecca Nagel, No Boundaries Coalition, Ray Kelly, community organizer with No Boundaries Coalition. Thank you both for being here today and for the work you're doing on the west side of this town. Jenny Egan, a co-founder co of Baltimore Action Legal Team. Good to have you with us as well, Jenny. And we will put uh, these events on our website so you can sign up and continue being part and active part of the process. Thank you all so much for being here. Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you so much. Thank you. We're going to take a short break, and it's that time for Booth Stories to meet an artist you may not know in town, talk about what's happening over uh, in the book festival this weekend and more. Stay with us. We'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> 